Okay, so here I am in my office once again. Uh, we had trouble with the recording again this morning. So we are looking for a better recording solution. And you can pray with us about that. But at this point, I'm going to uh, work through uh, what we looked at in the Bible study this morning uh, for your sake. And uh, hopefully what we look at is a blessing uh, to you and gives you direction in your Christian life. Uh, this morning we considered the question of church membership in the New Testament. And what we might do is just review briefly what we have gone over to this point so that we tie what we are looking at today back to that um, theology, theological foundation that we have been laying up to this point. We began our study a number of weeks ago looking at God who is the just uh, creator, the good creator, and the holy creator of this world. Uh, we owe our allegiance and our loyalty and our obedience to him. And as human beings, we have rebelled against him, and that creates tension and distance between a God who is just and this world. And the question that the Bible puts to us is, how will man and God be reconciled? And the answer that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and throughout the New Testament is that man is reconciled to God in Christ. God was in Christ, Paul tells us, when Christ came into this world. And as Christ moved through this world and went to the cross and died and rose again, he was living the life before God that we should have lived. And he was raised from the dead as the Father's signal and stamp of approval of, of his life, his receiving of Christ's sacrifice in our behalf. And now all those who are united to Christ are reconciled to God. God is in Christ. And when we are united to Christ, we find in him the righteousness we need. We find the sanctification we need, the wisdom from God, uh, the redemption that we need. It's all in Christ Jesus. And so being united to him, we are reconciled to God who is in Christ. This is the shape of the salvation that God has wrought for us. And the question that we looked at a couple of weeks ago was, how do we get into Christ and the answer to that is, when we believe, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, he baptizes us in his Holy Spirit. And we then come to possess the Spirit. He dwells within us. And it is the Spirit who spans the distance between Christ in heaven and us upon earth. So that by the Spirit's indwelling in us, Christ is in us. And as we walk in the Spirit, we are in Christ. And so this is the great truth that we find in our Bibles, that the Spirit of Christ dwells within us, and that changes everything. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that because there is one Spirit, all of those who are indwelt by that Spirit exist together now in a unity, a body, a single body. There is one Spirit, and so there is one body, one body in Christ. This is the effect of the Spirit dwelling within us. And we looked at the phrase, the body of Christ, in the New Testament, and we found that a synonymous phrase, a synonym, that Paul uses frequently is the church. And we find that word church throughout the New Testament. It is the same thing as the body of Christ, as we read our New Testaments, and yet we find that there are a couple of different meanings to that word church. In the New Testament, of course, the Greek word is ekklesia, 
And when Greek speakers used the word ekklesia, they were speaking about a gathering of individuals, a group of them, an assembly. And that assembly has not come together merely by chance, such as in a shopping mall, that they all happen to be in the same place. Instead, they have all come together with a common purpose in view. And sometimes we see this word used of an assembly in the New Testament, and at those points it has nothing to do with a religious body. Uh, for example, the rioters at Ephesus, who are seeking to take Paul's life, are called an ecclesia, a gathering of individuals who've come together for the sake of working their version of justice against Paul for his disrupting of their idolatrous practice. But when we look at the New Testament at that word ecclesia, we find that it is used of religious gatherings, and specifically it is used of the body of Christ. And it is used to speak of two different gatherings of the saints. The first that we saw, the minority usage, 12 times in the New Testament, the word church refers to what Christians mean when they speak about the universal church, all Christians of all ages. In what sense are all Christians of all ages a church, a gathering, an ecclesia? When have all Christians of all ages met together, assembled, and gathered? And the answer to that is that they have not yet. The universal church has never yet gathered, and yet we will around the throne of God in, on that great future day. We will assemble, and that will be the assembly, the gathering, the ecclesia of all of God's people. But the predominant usage in the New Testament of this word church, or ecclesia, refers to gatherings of saints that gather in specific locations, such as the church in Jerusalem, or the church in Antioch, or the church in Sancre. And the question that we are going to take up, uh, that we did last week and that we will this week, is what is a local church? Uh, five Christians who bump into each other at Aldi, a church. What if they bow their heads and pray together there by the milk cooler? What if the Aldi scene gives way to those five Christians singing choruses around a campfire? Is that a church? What if they close the evening with someone giving a devotional from God's Word? Is that a church? What about if they repeat that exercise every Sunday evening? What about if they buy a piano to accompany their singing? What about if they buy hymn books? If they appoint a pastor? If they build a building? At what point do those five Christians in Aldi cross the line from not a church to now a church? What, what is a local church? What is its essential character? Where is that line between not a church and now a church? Last week we noticed that local churches, first of all, are gatherings of saints who gather regularly. Five Christians who bump into each other at Aldi are not a local church. They do not gather regularly. The pattern that we see in the New Testament is that these local churches in different cities throughout the Mediterranean world of the first century gathered regularly. They gathered on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, the first day of the week, and they did so because that was the day commemorating Christ's resurrection from the dead. And so local churches are gatherings of saints who gather regularly. And this week we want to notice that local churches are gatherings of saints who gather definably. In other words, local churches have members. There is such a thing in the New Testament as church membership. And before we dive into that, I just want to put before you 
are two elements of a local church that historically Christians have always agreed upon. If you asked Christians throughout the centuries gone by, what is a local church? They would have pointed you to two main essential components. The first one is a right preaching of the word. If there is no proclamation of the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not a church. And the second thing that they would have pointed to is a right administration of the ordinances. If a gathering together of believers never observes the Lord's Supper and baptism is never part of their gatherings, they are not a local church. But where those ordinances are rightly practiced, you have a local church. What's interesting to me is the right preaching of the word, and this isn't going to make a lot of sense to you at this point, but over the next few weeks we will see this to be true. A right preaching of the word, the first of those essential components of a local church, that right preaching of the word actually leads to and creates members in a local church. And the second thing that Christians have pointed to as the essence of a local church, the right administration of the ordinances, what is interesting to me is that as I study the ordinances in the New Testament, I find out that their observance creates membership in the local church. And once again, I don't think that those statements will make sense to you at this point, but I think that in the future they will and will substantiate them from the New Testament. But at this point, then, there is a helpful picture of the church, and we could think of the local church as a triangle, a triangle having three points, and one of those points is the preaching of the word. The second of those points is the right observance of the ordinances. And the third point that that flows from both of those is local church membership. Taken together, the preaching of the word, the ordinances, and local church membership These are the three defining elements of what make a gathering of saints a local church. So, the question is this. Does the New Testament speak to us about church membership? Uh, Are saints members of the universal church? Obviously, yes. All saints are members of the universal church, the universal body of Christ. But are saints members of local churches? Do we see local church membership in the New Testament? If so, what is it? And why does it exist? This is a question we're going to spend several weeks on now together. And what we're going to try to do is to answer questions like these. Do local churches have members? Do Christians join or commit themselves to specific local churches? Should Christians join a local church? Or is membership in the universal church sufficient? Does the New Testament expect that Christians will join local churches? Is it biblical for Christians to commit themselves to a single group of believers to form a local church? How critical is the local church for my spiritual life in Christ? Can I get by without joining a church? What do I gain by joining a local church? Does Jesus want me to join a local church? So we're going to begin by looking at membership in the New Testament. Did early churches in the New Testament practice church membership? And it's clear as we look through the New Testament that the churches the apostles planted had members. They practiced church membership. They gathered definably. You could draw a line around those churches. You could say these saints are members of these churches and these individuals are not members of the church. Where do we see this? Well, you see this in a passage like Acts 2.41, and they were added to the church that day, 2,000 or 3,000 souls. How can you add 3,000 souls 
to a group of individuals if there is no membership amongst those individuals. You see the same thing in Acts 2.47. There's a really significant passage in Acts chapter 5 and verse 13. I'll just give you a second to turn there while I look it up myself. We'll begin reading in verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Now, this would be referring to the church in Jerusalem. And they were all together in Solomon's portico, one of the porticos on the temple in Jerusalem. This is where that local church, all 5,000 of them, gathered weekly on the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here they are gathering in Solomon's portico, and there's plenty of room in Solomon's portico for 5,000 people to gather. But, but it says in verse 13 that none of the rest, that would be the rest of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, none of the rest dared join them. You've got this group in Solomon's portico, and no one else dares to join them. But nevertheless, the people did hold these Christians in high esteem. And the situation is such that in verse 14, Luke writes, and more than ever... Believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now that phrase, added to the Lord, is parallel to what we see in verse 13. None of the rest dared join them. That would be all of the unbelieving Jews. They did not dare join them. But nevertheless, there were some Jews that believed. In fact, there were many of them. And more than ever, verse 14, believers were added to the Lord. It seems to parallel joining that group of believers in Solomon's portico with being added to the Lord. In other words, you can be added to the church. You can be added to the Lord. You can cross a boundary between not being part of that group, not joining yourself to them, not being added to the Lord, and now joining them, and now being added to the Lord. There is a line that exists between that group of believers and the world. It is a definable line, and when they gathered in Solomon's portico, they gathered definably. There were certain who had joined themselves. You can see the same idea in Acts chapter 11, verse 24. Turn to 3 John chapter 10. Uh, we see a very uh, another indication here of local church membership in the New Testament. Uh, this is a bit of a sad uh, story here, but John writes uh, to Gaius, who's probably the pastor of the church uh, that he's writing to here. He says, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority, John's authority as an apostle. So, John says, if I come, the church, I will bring up what he is doing. What is he doing? He's talking wicked nonsense against us. And Diotrephes is not content merely to talk wicked nonsense against John. Instead, or in addition to that, Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers. And he also stops those who want to. And he puts them out of the church. Here you've got a situation where Gaius is the pastor and Diotrephes apparently has some measure of leadership in that church. And in that church, there are uh, believers and Diotrephes uh, refuses to welcome them into the church. Uh, there are some who want to apparently join themselves to that church and Diotrephes refuses to welcome the brothers. And some who are in that church who are brothers they wish to welcome other brothers into the assembly, 
But Ahatrophy stops those who want to do that. And instead, he puts those people who are in the church, he puts them out of the church. Apparently, there's a line then between in the church and out of the church, and Diotrephes can exclude you from the church. Now, if the church here in 3 John verse 10 is referring to the universal church, then what would that mean? It would mean that Diotrephes was excluding brothers from the universal body of Christ. What is he doing then? Is he taking their salvation away from them? No, this is a passage that's speaking about the local church. And in that local church, where Gaius is the pastor, Diotrephes puts certain individuals out of the church. Again, indicating that they knew who was in the church and who was out of the church. You can see a very similar idea in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13. Look that up here, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 13. At the end of the verse, Paul says, Purge the evil person from among you. Put them outside of your gathering. Once again, we see that it is possible to be put out of the church, to be excluded. Uh, And you can only be excluded from something if you can be included in it also. And you can only be excluded or included if there is a definition of who is in and who is out if that gathering is definable, if you can draw a line around it. But look with me at verse 12, just a verse previous in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. Paul says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. So purge the evil person from among you. What is Paul saying here? Well, you know the context. Paul is writing to a local church, and they are tolerating a man in their midst who's committing gross immorality. The Corinthian believers have become arrogant and puffed up at their ability to tolerate this, and Paul writes to them, and he says, this is not right. You're not to associate with sexually immoral people, he says. And uh, Paul says, there's no need to uh, judge those who are outside the church, in other words, to disassociate oneself with from them. Uh, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Paul says, our responsibility is to judge those who are inside the church, and God will judge those who are outside. What form does this judgment take? Well, apparently it is the purging of the evil person from among you. In other words, there are some who are inside the church, and there are some who are outside the church. There is a boundary between the insiders and the outsiders, and an evil person who is on the inside can be purged. He can be put back across that line into the group of outsiders, those who are outside the church. Again, we see that there is a definable boundary between the church and the world. We know who is a member of a local church and who is not. You can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6. There Paul speaks about the reverse of the situation we see here in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, he's urging the believers in Corinth to exclude this man who is so immoral, but apparently the man repents. And so Paul comes back to them in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and he says this about that man, verse 5, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, he has caused pain to all of you. And certainly it is grievous to all of God's people when someone in the church sins and refuses to repent. It causes us grief. 
Paul says in verse 6, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. What punishment is he referring to? Well, he's referring to what we just saw in 1 Corinthians 5, the exclusion of this man from the church. And now he says that that punishment, which was inflicted upon him by the majority, has been sufficient. It has achieved its goal. And so now, verse 7, you should rather turn and forgive and comfort this man. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. What I want to focus on is that word majority in verse 6. Apparently, when the man was excluded from the church back in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a vote taken. And the majority of the members voted in favor of excluding him. Now that he's repented, they have the responsibility to turn and to forgive him, to receive him back. How do you know that there is a majority who vote for a thing unless the total number of those who are a part of the membership, part of the group is known? If you do not have membership, you cannot have a vote of the majority. Acts chapter 12 verse 1 shows us a similar thing. Acts chapter 12 verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. What is this saying? Herod has jurisdiction only in Judea, and he has laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. He kills, verse 2, he kills James, who is the pastor in Jerusalem. And when he sees that that pleases the Jews, he proceeds to arrest Peter also. And so the church, in verse 1, that's being spoken of is not the universal church. Herod is not persecuting all Christians of all ages. Instead, he's persecuting those who gather together in his jurisdiction, the church in Jerusalem. And he lays violent hands on some who belong to the church. In other words, there are some individuals who can be said to belong to the church. And there are some who do not belong to the church. In other words, there is local church membership. And Herod could know who it was who was a part of that church and who was not. And he chooses to lay his hands upon those who do belong to the church. Acts chapter 6 and verse 2 speaks of the full company of the disciples who are gathered together. How can the apostles gather together the full company of the disciples to make a decision about deacons if they do not know who is a part of that company of the disciples? If there is not definable membership, a line around that group of people so that they can say, okay, we are all here now. And you can look at a similar idea in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 9, where widows are added to the list of a church. You can look in verse 16 of 1 Timothy chapter 5, where it says that certain widows are not to be supported by the church, lest they unduly burden the church. But if a widow meets certain qualifications, she is to be put on the list and supported by that church. There was no welfare system in Paul's day. And a widow who did not have family or a husband, uh, by definition, therefore, she is a widow, uh, that woman uh, was destitute. And if that woman was a believer, if she's washed saints' feet, if she has born children, uh, she is to be taken care of, according to what Paul says here in 1 Timothy. Now, this can be a very sticky situation if we do not acknowledge church membership, local church membership. Because what Paul says here cannot apply to every believing widow in the world. A local church 
The church in Jerusalem does not have a responsibility to care for every widow who belongs to the universal church. Instead, the local church in Jerusalem has a responsibility to care for all of those widows in its midst who meet the qualifications. And thus, it's important, it's vital to know which widows are part of the church in Jerusalem and which ones are not. In other words, there's got to be some definable boundary around the local church in Jerusalem if they are to faithfully carry out this command of Jesus Christ. And so here we see membership throughout the New Testament. There are indications of it throughout the New Testament. And yet, though there is no question that New Testament churches planted by the apostles had definable boundaries and individual saints could be either inside or outside the church, they did practice church membership. Nevertheless, historical accounts are never normative. If they were we ought to cast lots, as they did in Acts 1. We ought to speak in tongues, as they did in Acts 2. We ought to heal the lame, as they did in Acts 3. Just because the New Testament church in the Apostles' time did something does not mean that we must do it also. Their example is not our command. The question is whether the New Testament invests these historical accounts with theological significance. Was there a a reason they did it as they did? And if we can find that reason, then perhaps from that reason we might know whether or not we should practice church membership today. In other words, did the early church have such a view of reality that required the practice of church membership of them and that would require it of us as well? And throughout the remainder of the New Testament, we see a worldview that makes the practice of church membership by the early church seem not only understandable, but vital, vital to them and to us. They rightly understood that they could not be faithful followers of Jesus Christ and not practice church membership. What I want to do at this point is put three categories of Christians up here on the screen for you. And I know that on the recording you can't see this, so I'll try to talk you through what we looked at this morning on the PowerPoint. Uh, Here in a triangular configuration, we have elders or pastors. Uh, That's a group of believers that we find in the New Testament. Uh, We have you. You are a believer. You claim to follow Jesus Christ. And the third group that we have is other Christians. So if you want to draw this out on a piece of paper yourself, you can draw those three groups in a triangular pattern. Elders, pastors, other Christians, and you. And we can draw lines between these groups of people. Because the New Testament gives us commands that define the relationship between these groups of people. For example, the New Testament gives us commands that relate to an elder's responsibility towards other Christians, towards members of the church. Such as, elders have the responsibility to teach them, to pray for them. And we'll look at some of those in a minute. The New Testament gives Christians commands about how they are to respond to elders. They are to submit to them, they are to remember them, they are to imitate them, and so on. We'll look at those commands in a minute. And the New Testament also gives us commands that regulate and define our relationship with other Christians. And so you can draw two-way arrows between each of those groups forming a triangle. And uh, what we want to do at this point is we want to look at some of those commands that define those relationships. But before we do, you should have drawn six arrows 
uh, between those groups, uh, two arrows going in opposite directions between each one of those groups, forming a triangle. But those six arrows we can categorize into uh, different groups. For example, your relationship and commands that affect your relationship to elders are the same commands that affect all other Christians' relationship to elders. And so those commands are going to be of the same category. The commands that affect an elder's relationship to you and the commands that affect an elder's relationship to other other Christians are identical as well, since you are one of those other Christians. And the commands that affect your relationship to other Christians are the same commands that affect other Christians' relationship to you. And so really we have three categories of commands here. We have the commands that regulate a Christian's relationship to elders, We have the commands that regulate an elder's relationship to Christians. And we have commands that regulate a Christian's relationship to other Christians. So let's begin by looking at a Christian's relationship to elders. What are some of the commands that regulate this relationship? If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5, we find that Christians have the responsibility to submit to elders. You see this in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. Obey. And submit to those who are your leaders. Uh, Let me just look it up here so I'm not quoting off the top of my head. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So a Christian has the responsibility to obey and submit to elders, to pastors. Now, my question is this. Which elders? Which pastors? Do you, as a Christian, have a responsibility to submit to every pastor in the universal church? There are thousands of them, perhaps millions. Do you have a responsibility to obey and submit to all of them? Or do you have a responsibility to obey and submit to your leaders, the ones who are keeping watch over your soul? The question is this. How do you know which leaders are yours? Unless there is such a thing as local church membership. Where you say, I submit myself to the ministry of these elders. And I will submit to these and not to others. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 7 says we are to remember elders. Those who have spoken to us the word of God. Probably it's referring here to those who have passed on to glory. Uh, There's elders. Think of Brother Bob, who served in uh, your church as an elder, and he's older, and he has lived a Christian life before you. He's spoken truth to you, and now he's passed on to heaven. Do you forget him? Hebrews says, no, remember him. Remember his faith. Remember his walk with the Lord. Remember the truth he's spoken to you. And the second half of that verse, Christians have a responsibility then to imitate elders, even those who have passed on, to follow their faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, Christians have a responsibility to respect elders, to esteem them highly in love for their work's sake. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Christians have a responsibility to honor elders, to give them the honor that they are due as shepherds over Christ's flock. And the double honor that is spoken of here is both a honoring of the elder, but also honoring him by material support, uh, paying him for his uh, work in the word, uh, supporting him. Uh, My question is this, if we have a responsibility to honor and support elders, 
Does that mean that every Christian must support every elder in the universal church? Or is that command limited by local church membership? Does a Christian have a responsibility only to honor and support the elders who are over him in his local church? And finally, we have the responsibility as Christians to rebuke elders on the testimony of two or three witnesses if they are found sinning. Rebuke them before all, Paul says. There's another category of commands, and that is Christian to Christian. And here it might be helpful for us to turn to 1 John chapter 3. Uh, we'll just read this passage together. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. We will begin there. Uh, what commands in the New Testament regulate Christians' relationship to other Christians? Well, look at verse 11 of 1 John 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. There's the command. Love one another. Does that mean, does that command... Is that asking us to love all the unbelievers in the world? And the answer to that is no, because it says we should love one another. In other words, it's mutual. It goes both ways. These are two Christians who love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Okay, here's the relationship, Christian and world. World hates Christians. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Why does the, why does the world hate, hate Christians? Why do they not love the brothers? Because they have not passed out of death into life. But we know that we have because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. That's the world. They do not love Christians. They abide in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. To think of two Christians in a local church. They hate one another. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you have two so-called Christians who hate one another, and they will not repent of that, they do not have eternal life abiding in them. They are not saved. They are not Christians. By this, we know love. Okay, that's the question. If our love is what demonstrates that we have eternal life abiding in us, if our love is what demonstrates that we are members of God's family who loved us first, how do we know if we're loving? What is love? By this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's what love is. It's laying down your life for the brothers. And what does that look like? Verse 17, very practically. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk only, but let us love in deed and in truth. Now these verses are very scary to me because we live in a world of social media. And on social media, through the internet, we learn about the needs of brothers around the world. You can get online and you can find about needy Christians in Nigeria. You can find about needy Christians in the Middle East, in China, in Africa. South America, in Canada, you can find about needy Christians all over the world. And John says, if you see a brother in need, and you close up your heart and you do not meet that need, how does God's love dwell in you? Now, if this command applies to every Christian in the world, if it applies to my relationship to every Christian in the world, then I'm in big trouble, because I cannot lay down my life for every one of them. And if I do not, how does God's love abide in me? 
No, what limits this command is local church membership. The one another in verse 11 is the one another of local church membership. I am responsible. If I see a need that a brother in my church has, I am responsible before God to meet it. And if I close up my heart of compassion against him, how does God's love dwell in me? You can see that these commands require local church membership. We have the responsibility to pray for one another, James chapter 5, verse 16. Does that mean I must pray for every Christian of all ages in the universal church? Or does that mean that I am uniquely called of God to pray for those brothers who are in my local church? What about confess my faults one to another and pray for one another that I may be healed? Does that mean that I have to confess my faults to every other Christian? Do I post on Facebook, alert to all Christians, I have sinned. Do I post my faults publicly? No. I confess my faults to other brothers in my local church. We have the responsibility to submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21, to edify one another, Ephesians 4.11, to confront one another, Matthew 18.15. Do I need to get online and straighten every Christian on every continent out in all of their online content? Do I need to confront every sin that I find online? No. Instead, I need to confront the sin that I find in other brothers in my local church. We are to greet one another, 1 Thessalonians 5.26. We are to forgive one another, Colossians 3.13. We are to teach one another, Colossians 3.16. We are to admonish one another, Romans 15.14 and Colossians 3.16. Must I admonish every believer in the universal church? No. But in my local church, yes. We are to minister to one another, 1 Peter 4.10-11 and Romans 12.6. We are to relieve one another's financial distresses. Romans 12, verse 13, James 2, 15, 1 John 3, 11 through 18. We are to live in harmony with one another. We are to honor widows. 1, Corinthians 5, 3, 1 Timothy 5, 3. And as we saw before, that requires local church membership. And finally, we have commands of elder to Christian. What responsibilities do elders bear to Christian? Christians? First of all, they are to shepherd them, Acts 20.28 and 1 Peter 5.2. Do elders have the responsibility to shepherd every Christian in the universal church? No. Their responsibility, their accountability to Jesus Christ to fulfill that command to shepherd is limited to those sheep that Christ puts in their flock, in their local church. We can read about this in 1 Peter 5 verse 2. I charge you, I exhort you, Peter says, to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In other words, there's life-on-life relationships here of example. Elders are not examples to Christians on other continents, but they do have a responsibility to be an example to those who, uh, among whom they minister. We are, elders are to pray for Christians. Acts chapter 6 verse 4. Does Christ hold them accountable to pray for every Christian in all ages throughout the world? No. But he will for those who are members of their local church. They have the responsibility to teach. Does that mean that elders should post all of their teaching on YouTube so that everyone in the entire universal church in the world today can access it? No have the responsibility to do that uniquely in their church. They have the responsibility to watch over those whom the Holy Spirit has made them overseers over. We see this in Hebrews 13, 17. This is a really scary passage, actually, for elders, in my opinion. 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Christ is going to hold elders accountable for keeping watch over the souls of those under their care. It would be nice, then, for an elder to know which Christians are under his care and for whom he will give account. How does he know? Is he accountable for every Christian in the world? Is he accountable for any person who ever visits his church? Is he accountable for any person who attends regularly? Is he accountable for any person who comes twice or three times? Is he accountable for people who visit once a year? Who must he watch over? And the answer to that is those who are part of that local assembly, those who are members. Elders have the responsibility to silence false teachers. That's not something for the universal church. Elders bear that responsibility in the local church. To rebuke uh, Christians who sin, Titus 1.13. And to be an example, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3. And so we have these relationships, in the, in the relationships between elders and pastors and other Christians and you. There are commands that define them. And my contention is that those commands cannot be properly obeyed without local church membership. There has got to be some line around these gatherings of saints so that elders know who is part of the flock, so that you know who you ought to pray for, so that you know which widows you ought to care for, so that you know which elders you ought to submit to, so that you know which elders' teaching you ought to heed and for which Christ will hold you accountable to obey. And that line, if you want to draw a circle all the way around that triangle, the circle that you draw around all of those groups, those three groups, and all of those commands, that circle is called local church membership. It defines who's in. It defines those who you have agreed together with to exercise these Christian-to-Christian commands and relationships with. It defines which elders you are to submit to, which elders you are to listen to, It defines which Christians elders are to pastor, to shepherd, to pray for, to teach. Local church membership is vital to obeying these commands from Jesus Christ. And so, local local churches are gatherings of saints who gather regularly. But they are also, local churches are gatherings of saints who gather definably. And there's three points here that I just want to make about our life in Christ, and then we'll finish take up some of these next week. We're actually only going to make one of the points right now. But we have noticed that the salvation that we have from God takes a particular shape. How are we saved? We are saved by being united to Jesus Christ. And so our life that we live now. Paul says, I live in Christ. All of my ways are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to live In Christ. What does it mean to live as a member of Christ's body? What does it mean to live in union with Jesus Christ? I think a large part of that has to be living as a member of Christ's body. Living as a member of a local church, the body of Christ. You see, it's impossible to obey Christ unless you are a member of a local church. How can you obey Hebrews 13, 17, unless you are a member of a local church? What elders are you submitting to and obeying, unless you're a member of a local church? What elders are watching for your soul? How can they obey Christ, apart from local church membership? 
See, life in Christ requires local church membership. The very shape of the gospel requires local church membership. Our obedience to Christ requires that we join ourselves, we submit ourselves to other other believers, that we come together and agree together mutually to appoint elders who will exercise these roles over us and to whom we will submit ourselves and imitate and follow and be taught by. Local church membership is when we come together and agree that we will love one another, we will pray for one another, we will exhort one another, we will admonish one another, we will teach one another, we will pray for one another, we'll greet one another and confront one another and confess our faults to one another. This is what local church membership is. And obedience to Christ requires local church membership. And so, in summation, we can say that real Christian life is local church membership. Life in Christ is life in the body of Christ. And that becomes real for us when we submit ourselves to membership in the body of Christ. Life in Christ is life in the body of Christ. And that becomes real for us when we submit ourselves to membership in the body of Christ. Lord God, you have been kind. You put these churches together. You have given us clear instructions about how the relationships in these churches are to function. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to submit ourselves to these things. Pray that you would help us to see that Christ's ministry to us as our great shepherd takes place through the shepherds that he has appointed over us. Our following of Christ as our shepherd takes real shape and form as we follow the shepherds that Christ has placed over us. Our membership in the universal body of Christ, our union with him as our head, with other members, takes real form and shape when we live alongside other members of the body of Christ in the local church. And here we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. Lord, thank you for churches. Pray that you would form one here in Brisbane. And we ask this for Christ's sake and for the sake of his people. Amen.